I'm Rob. I'm Michelle. And this is Two, Two Librarians, Librarians Walk Into a Shelf. Before we get started today, I just wanted to say thank you for listening to us. We've been having the best time recording this podcast for the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. If you've had fun listening, let us know. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you find us entertaining, maybe you share us with your friends. I don't know. Maybe you don't want to let anyone know you listen or are a little embarrassed. That's fine. We're embarrassed for ourselves. Yeah, we respect that. We appreciate you spending time with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting us into your ears. All right. This week we are doing... Two books and a movie. Classic two librarians walking to a shelf. Well, this is fun because we kind of let everybody know what we're reading and watching. Is yeah. this stuff from the library yeah. system? I think once again we both picked uh, nonfiction. I believe. Yeah. All right. So what what have you been reading? Uh, the, I have been reading Veritas: colon, A Harvard Professor, A Con Man, and the Gospel of Jesus's Wife. It's by Ariel Sabar. This book has everything. Heretical Christian texts, document forgers, pornographers, Harvard, both as a research and scientific institution as well as a respected divinity school, escapes from East Germany by swimming across the lake in the middle of the night in 1961, lying on resumes to get jobs, and possibly upending 2,000 years of religious belief. What? I said everything. That really is everything. Right? How did you keep up with all that? I don't know. This book, it was it was almost like it was a mystery thriller. It sounds like an Indiana Jones movie. Exactly. But it really happened. That's crazy. Yeah. So, okay. So, at this biblical conference in 2012 in Rome, the Hollis Professor of Divinity at Harvard University, her name is Karen King. She's, like, super highly respected. She presents her findings on this lost piece of papyrus with the words, they're written in Coptic. It's like a teeny tiny little piece, and it says, Jesus said to them, my wife. And, like, everybody's freaking out. So King is, like I said, she's a highly respected academic, and she went through all the right pathways and processes to get this fragment of papyrus authenticated, like carbon dating, the composition of the ink, the style of the handwriting. Unfortunately, a large part of document authenticating that I learned from this book is tracing, they call it the provenance of the book. It's who, where did the book come from? Who had it? Who had it last? Who had it before that? Where did they get it? Where did they find it? So, like, that's a large part of document authentication, apparently. And that they couldn't really find a lot of information on at the time. But, yeah, part of this papyrus from, like, 400 A.D. says, Jesus said to them, my wife. And so King was very deliberate when she starts talking about this and that like, she's not saying that Jesus had a wife. She's just saying that this group of believers, this congregation at the time believed that he did have a wife. And so in her mind, this is a case to back off of the focus of the teaching of the gospels. It's like women are subservient and cannot speak in, the presence of men and like all those things that she always felt left her out of religion, like growing up in a Methodist household and then ended, ending up at 
like going, getting degrees in divinity. You know, there's lots of belief systems that wouldn't allow her to share her knowledge just because that's the way they feel. It was written in the same style as the Gnostic Gospels, which are books of the Bible that the Catholic Church has decided they didn't want to include in their Bible. So there's lots of places around the world that do include those Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas. I don't know. This, Like I said, this really was like an Indiana Jones situation. So the author of the book, Savar, he takes a large section of the book to kind of like psychoanalyze Harris and also the person she gets the document from. His name is Walter Fritz. And he decides that King is so desperate uh, to authenticate this piece of papyrus because she has felt left out of the church for so long. And that makes her the target of Walter Fritz, who also has this crazy history of like lying on resumes to get jobs in museums and um, later becomes a pornographer. And he has, he forges this little piece of like in the end, like it is determined that it is a forgery, but for several years, like it goes through all these processes to authenticate it. And it's, and they, people believe it's real in the end. It's, it's not apparently, but there, I found some more sources on this cause it was so bonkers. Mm-hmm. And there's a podcast from Duke university. It's called the NT pod, the new Testament podcast. It's hosted by Mark Goodacre. He's the Francis Hill Fox professor of religious studies at Duke. And he teaches sections on apocrypha and her- heretical books of the Bible for students there. And He's included some of his lectures in the podcast that he like gives to his students about this book or this heretical book, the, you know, the gospel of Jesus's wife. He doesn't use any like psychoanalyzing to try to figure out anybody's motivation motivations for it. He just says that from his perspective, the thing that convinced him the most that this was a forgery was that the writing on the papyrus was basically just lifted from sources that are easily found by anybody on the internet. Oh, because they've taken some of the Gnostic Gospels and just, like, uploaded scans of them. So anybody can just go and find them and find the translations. So they can pick and choose little pieces. And there's apparently, like, a weird phrasing that doesn't normally happen in Coptic in one section of the Gospel of Thomas that shows up on this little piece of papyrus. Like, they basically never say, to them. And so it says, Jesus says to them, my wife. Oh. And so that's that's the thing that threw people off. It's like, this is not a thing that Coptic uses. Anyway, it was very fascinating. And then Ariel Sabar wrote several articles about this before he got his book deal in the Atlantic. And you can go back and read. They're pretty long, in-depth articles about the people surrounding the story and the story itself. And they're on the Atlantic. And so if you haven't been to the Atlantic yet this month and you don't have a subscription, you get three articles for free and you can read them. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like a suspense thriller. To me, all that's missing to make it a suspense thriller is the mysterious death of someone in the end. But honestly, since this is real life, I'm glad that didn't happen. Sure. And it's just controversy. So uh, it was well-written. It was suspenseful. And it was bonkers. What else can you ask for? I know. I mean, that's a good read right there. It was. So that was Veritas by Ariel Sabar. Sounds like fun. It was. I got to my book from another book. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. So I've been enjoying the EC archives on Hoopla. Those are the old EC comic books. 
uh, from the for, late 40s, early 50s, the uh, war on crime, tales from the crypt, vault of horror, suspense stories, crime suspense. So I've been enjoying those, and I got interested to look up Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wortham. And he's the psychiatrist that wrote this book about how comic books turn kids into juvenile delinquents. This was the guy that tried to shut the comics business down, and it was William Gaines who was constantly going back and forth uh, in this these Senate hearings uh, trying to explain to people that, one, kids are not idiots. You know, kids know for the most part. They know, you know right from wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that comic books don't, don't turn them into like, you know, blood sucking freaks. So I've always read about seduction of the innocent. I've never read seduction of the innocent. While Wortham didn't necessarily believe in censorship, he did feel like there were certain comic books that children shouldn't get their hands on because they might be influenced. And so I understand that it's like a movie being rated PG, PG 13 R. you know, I get it. Some movies kids don't need to be in. I mean, I don't like going to R rated movies with a bunch of little kids. Cause then I got to hear them making noise. And I assume that's why we have ratings so I can go see my movies and enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Right. So I started reading it and it's very dry, very academic, very, you know, because the child has read a story in which this happens, then this is possible, you know, outcome later on in the child's life. Huh. I couldn't get into it. I mean, it was like listening to somebody who's generations away from something popular, like trying to get your grandma to talk about rap music. Right. You know, like you wouldn't, like if you had to go to a hundred people and ask them about rap music, Mama would never be on that list. Right. <laughs> but this was basically that. Okay. So I couldn't get into the the book. I understand its h- historical significance. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get into it. So I'm on this EC Comics kick, and I found in our collection EC Comics Race, Shock, and Social Protest by Quiana Witted. So I gave it a shot. I'm like, how bad could it be? I know nothing about it. If it's talking about EC Comics, I'm all in. Well, what a surprise. So this book looks at the significance of a lot of the EC Comics that were positive in showing repercussions from bigotry and hatred. Professor Witted kind of goes into what was kind of jokingly referred to as the preachies. Like every EC comic had maybe one story where they were really trying to make a point and make the kid, uh, assuming that kids were, were the only readers, but something that made the reader think. Like for the most part, they were all entertainment, the stories, you know. It was always like <laughs> one story I read the other night. This, there's this guy, he's hunting with his friend. He's really cruel. He kills a bear. He's very... He's a, he's very much a jerk about cutting the bear up and skinning it and making a bearskin rug, and then Ew. and then they go to bed and in their tents the guy the other guy wakes up the guy who doesn't want to see any of this uh, wakes up because he hears his friend screaming and when he gets out to the campsite 
there's now, you know, uh, a human rug, a Jacob skin rug. Gross. <laughs> and it's his friend who's been gutted and laid out in front of the fire, the campfire as a, you know, like a bearskin rug. That's, I mean, I guess there's a, there's a lesson there sort of, but that was just entertainment. Some stories though, uh, they did deal with race and religion and the twist endings often involved uh, shame and humiliation on the part of the tormentor. So a couple of the specific stories that this book explores, the first one is one that was reprinted, uh, Judgment Day. And this is where a human judge comes to a mechanical world of robots, which is terrifying, but there was hope at that point in human history that robots would be good, I guess. <laughs> don't, don't trust robots. That's right. Um, but he's there to judge this world to see if it's ready to join the Federation of Men, you know, to become a planet in, this, in, the, in the planets of, of men. And while he's there, he observes that the blue ro- robots on the planet are segregated from the orange robots, even though they're all made from the same parts, they all have the same internal workings. The outer part of each robot is different. One's blue, one's orange. The blue robots don't get the opportunities that the orange robots get. And he says that this is something that man had to deal with hundreds of years ago. But if man can overcome this, he knows that the robots will get their stuff straight. So they're not ready until they figure out a way to do away with this kind of thinking. Uh-huh. So right there, it's thought provoking because we know what they're saying. Uh-huh. You know, the internal parts of the robots are the same. It's the outer. So through this entire story, we don't see the man, the judge who's talking to them. And uh, the very last panel, he takes his, his space helmet off and he's a black man. And that's not a twist ending. It's a twist ending in that for the entire story, probably no one considered that he was a black astronaut, right. a black judge, and that Earth ever got their, their stuff straight. Um, and that's that particular cartoon, there were principals who bought multiple copies of that particular comic book that they then distributed to their students for them to learn something from this particular, like this one was a very strong. Do you know what year that one was, was written? I believe it was 53 and then it was, and then it was reprinted again in 57. Okay. I I believe those, those are the years. Um, Blood brothers is another story. Uh, A guy finds out that one of his neighbors actually has uh, African American heritage and so he just taunts this guy to the point of the guy commits suicide. And then after the guy has killed himself and this guy feels like, hey, I've cleaned up the neighborhood, you know, uh, ha, 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 we're back to order. He finds out that when he was a boy, he had a horrible accident and he took a, tran- a blood transfusion from a black man and he's had African-American heritage in his body his whole life. He was actually had more in him than this guy that he, you know, (laughs) ended up making him kill himself. That's another powerful thing. Yeah. Like, you know, you never know. You can't judge somebody by the way they look. The whipping. This is another, a guy gets upset, 
because his daughter is uh, dating a Hispanic member of the community. He feels like they're they're getting too friendly, so he riles up his neighbors, and they go after this guy, and they get they break into the man's house in the dark. They nab the guy. They beat this man to death because it's a Hispanic man dating this guy's daughter. Uh-huh. She, they pull the blanket off of the guy, and then the guy shows up, and they actually they snag the man's daughter and beat her to death. Uh. And that's all because of his bigotry. Uh-huh. So you see where the preachies were, were, were coming from. Yeah. And that was never a consideration at the time. Uh, Bill Gaines even tried to explain that these particular stories, they did put thought into them. And uh, the book illustrates some of the, um, the reader's responses by reprinting parts of letters. Oh. Obviously, for the most part, a lot of people really got on board, and a lot of people didn't. They felt like stories like that didn't need to be in comic books. And mm-hmm. 10 times as many readers felt like they needed more stories like that that maybe they'd get through to people. And it's just an interesting thing that when you think of that time, for the most part, if you're not familiar with the EC comics, you hear horror comics. They were bad for kids. They turned them into delinquents when, in fact, they were actually they actually had more on their minds. And that's what uh, Professor Witted does here. It's really, really uh, a great, great little book. Uh, it examines a lot of these specific stories talks uh, to the creators and some of them archival in- interviews. Uh, it's a quick read. It puts a, it really puts a positive spin on these infamous crime and horror comics. And, uh, you know, I was not aware of what this book was until it showed up. And I was so pleasantly surprised. It really drew me in. I think anybody who's interested in, uh, in EC comics or just comics or how any kind of uh, or how comics can maybe be used to entertain and possibly teach a lesson. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. That sounds fascinating. It's very interesting. We do have it. So you can, you can definitely pick that up from the HMCPL system. And then of course the EC archives, I'm going, I'm blowing through those pretty quick in, in, in on Hoopla and, uh, just reading these things and just imagining the impact that they had when they first came out. It's just, uh, you know, this is something that we've been dealing with for quite a while and mm-hmm. very interesting. EC comics, race, shock, and social protest. If you want to try to read, uh, you know, seduction of the innocent, you could, or go ask your mama about rap music. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, our movie this time that we both watched is Wonder Woman 1984. All right. I hear all of you out there right now. Like Denton Rob just talk a, a bunch of smack about comic book movies just a couple weeks ago about the Snyder Cut. Look, this is different. This is Wonder Woman. So let's just go on. Okay. If you're sure. Well, I mean, it's... It's possible that some people think I'm being a little bit of a hypocrite, but, you know, I play favorites with what I watch. 
And uh, I chose uh, because I enjoyed the first Wonder Woman. And then there's uh, maybe actresses in this one. Okay, let's just get that straight. Just for the record, Rob's celebrity crush is Kristen Wiig. All right, we don't want to make a too big of a deal out of this, but but yes, Kristen Wiig is awesome. Okay, she's your girlfriend. She's she's my movie girlfriend. Right. Okay. And she plays Cheetah. That's a pretty cool villain. Oh, it's a great villain. There was a lot of stuff in this one that was pretty cool. There was. It's just it, I feel like comic book movies are lazy storytelling. And I. I 100% agree with that. I didn't think that Wonder Woman 1984 was necessarily lazy storytelling because I thought there was a lot of good ideas in here, but I thought it was a lazy execution. It seems like this was way undercooked. Yeah, like they just ignored the storytelling process in favor of fancy effects. Well, and I think that I think that this one it to a point, yes, you're right. The, the basic story is is there's a, a a heist of some antiques. They are identified. One is the Dreamstone, and anyone who makes a wish, that wish comes true. So some of the characters make wishes, and there's repercussions for everything. Right. And of course, the movie starts with with uh, Diana Prince learning. Uh, I guess she was just Diana when she was a. A girl. Yeah. And so Diana learns a, a lesson that there's no shortcuts in life. Everything you get, you earn. So obviously making a wish <laughs> is a shortcut. Right. And anyone who makes a wish learns that. So some of the stuff that people were wishing for, I thought made for an interesting story. Yeah. And then they got lazy because then it had to turn back into a comic book movie. Uh-huh. And do some rumbling. Then we had to throw some CGI destruction in there. And then I feel like it fell apart. I feel like the promise of some of the storylines, well, we don't want to say too much. Well, I think it suffered from the same things that I think of, like all the Marvel movies suffer for. For me, they don't make me care enough. Like there's no buy-in. They expect me to just already be bought into it. But see, I thought the motivations of the characters worked. I thought the Barbara character played by Kristen Wiig, she was kind of like a little nerd girl. And she never fit in, and she just wanted to fit in. And so her wish made sense. It did. And then to try not to lose what she had, everything her character did, there was motivation. Yeah. I just thought it was sloppy the way... She kind of aligned herself with the other bad guy who kind of like, he just like looked like Jeremy Rayner to me. Uh, he looked like, you know, like he a, wasn't a very good villain. He was like a low, low cost Hawkeye. Yeah. In a business suit. He was like a motivational speaker for He was hell. very 80s though. Yes, his motivations. I understand. Yeah, and I mean, he was a very '80s villain, I guess, in that respect. Like, he just wants more, 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 right? More. That was, but I don't. I just like maybe it's just I like less action and more storytelling. That's a personal preference. Sure, and and I tend to be the same way. And then Diana's wish was the one that made the most sense to me. Yes, and that was heartbreaking because she. Yes. 
it was one of the rare times where I felt like, and I don't watch all the, I don't watch all the superhero movies, so uh-uh. I don't know, but this is a, a rare thing, at least in the ones that I've seen, where the superhero makes a decision based on her, on her. Mm-hmm. She's not thinking of the rest of the world. Yeah. She does it for her. She has a moment to be selfish. And that's very, that, that makes, that's very humanizing. Uh-huh. She's thinking of herself, but then to be a real hero, she then has to decide has if to it's worth it. Wish. Yeah. Yeah. So in that, that hurt, regard. That, that broke my heart. Yeah. So that, there's the nugget of a really great story there. Yeah. So why didn't I care more? Because it was two and a half hours. <laughs> based on a 30-minute premise. It's the monkey's paw. It should have been a Tales from the Crypt. It could have been a preachy. We'd have (laughs) been in and out. (laughs) I mean, the story just took too long. And then the whole thing with uh, Max Lord's the bad guy, Uh making the wishes, and I he was the least effective part of the movie. Uh I didn't buy him and his kid. His kid having all this, uh, you know, having any effect on him because like the 80s you know those kind of guys like him they didn't they they were in it for one reason money 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 get all the get all the dirty money i don't know i just and i didn't think that the action was big like it started off big yeah it started off big and then of course there's the shopping mall at the beginning yeah i know you loved that all it needed was the go-go's we got the beat i know Actually, what I think it really needed, since this was 1984, there should have been a Cineplex. Oh, yeah. There should have been a Cineplex, and people should have, there should have been a line of people. This was getting on 4th of July. There should have been a line of people at the mall Cineplex buying tickets for that November's big superhero comic book movie release, which was DC's Supergirl. That was the only. That was the only comic book movie released in 1984. Uh, if Interesting. You're not, if you're not counting Toxic Avenger, which is a comic, he's a superhero, uh-huh. but he wasn't based on a comic book. Uh-huh. So in 1984, people, well, no, nobody flocked to see Supergirl. Superhero comic book movies didn't get any love in the 80s. Interesting. Yeah. And that's the one with Helen Slater, not, not the Supergirl that people think of from TV. Okay. But I think she's on the show. Or she's popped on the show before. But uh, so, yeah, I thought it was undercooked. I thought they could have done more. Too much of it reminded me of like Marvel movies. I do really like the Wonder Woman theme music, though. When she starts like kick butt. Oh, right. And like, the I don't know. The Wonder Woman theme music is very good. Well done. There's so much stuff I could, I would love to talk about that I liked about this, but uh, it gives away some stuff. Yeah, I don't want to do that either. But the theme music is great. I hate that I didn't like the movie more. I say, especially now that we're talking about it. Like, like I, I, I wanted to like it a lot more than I did, and I'm sad about that. Like 100 percent sad about that because I love the character Wonder Woman. The first movie I thought was really great for a comic book movie. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and that's the only reason I watched this one. You only watched this one for Kristen Wiig. You're right. Okay. All right. So anyway, um, but I really thought the moment where. She has to decide on her wish was was wonderful because like we don't see that from enough. Like if you remember the original Superman, yes, I do. Lois Lane died, so, so Superman goes out of his mind. He gets the 
He gets the rotation of the earth to spin backwards to go back in time uh-huh. so he can save her. Right. You want to talk about a selfish, a selfish, selfish SOB. Like he messed with all our lives to save Lois Lane, mm-hmm. which seems heroic then. But now it's like, come on, man. <laughs> what's what's wrong with you? Um, I did like the way they portrayed like nation states having to deal with what they were dealing with. And it's like, well, suddenly there are hundreds more nuclear bombs that just suddenly popped up. And so now we also have to have, we must retaliate. Now we all have four minutes to live. Like that's exactly what would have happened in the eighties. Oh, it would probably I mean, it now. happened now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but yeah. It was, I, I almost laughed out loud at that. Like <laughs> we got to strike back more, 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 more. Yeah. Um, I felt like, for a $200 million movie, it should have been better. I agree. Like $200 million. Like when you think of like what Blumhouse is doing with like $10 million, Yeah. Like their good movies are great compared to this being good for $200 million. It's like you can get an $8 steak at like Denny's. Uh-huh. And if it's good, it's great. But if you go to an actual steakhouse and get a $38 steak and it's and no it's better just, than that $8. Yeah. Yeah. You're like... I could have just gone to Denny's and saved 30 bucks. I felt like there's something like these movies, you can't be spending this kind of money and only giving me good, which is why I don't generally like comic book superhero movies. But this movie in its closing moments, and I can't give this away. No, don't give it away. But for me, I came up off of the couch. Okay. I applauded the, the stinger, the end credit stinger. Mm Mm-hmm. Best comic book stinger of all time. I can't say the best movie stinger of all time because that goes to Airplane. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch Airplane and watch the credits through to the end of Airplane. It's the funniest 17 seconds of any movie ever. But, yeah, this was my favorite all time. Like, you want to talk about getting pumped. This one pumped me. I loved it. It gave the my whole outlook on the movie Okay. And I'm happy it didn't happen earlier because I would have expected the movie to outdo itself. Sure. And there's no way it ever could have. So at least it kind of popped it at the end of a of a good movie and made it a or you know. So I don't think we're giving this thumbs down, but it's kind of like, it's like a, thumbs in the middle. Like yeah. it was fine. It was good. It just I wished it was more. I wish it was more and I wish it was less. Like I wish it took less of my life to watch it. And it was also a better movie. I think that if they would have taken an hour out of it, it would have been actually if it was just on the wishes and all the, the superhero stuff was taken out. Well, then it's not a super. Not. And they could have spent less time about with, like dealing with Max Lord. Like there was nothing that like so much time was spent on him that just could have been spent on something else. We know it, we get it. He's greedy. He wants more and more and more and more. Why do we need to talk about it for 10 minutes? They could have taken more of him out of the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, hey, I get it. Wall Street saw it. Greed is good. Let's get on with it. It's the 80s. Let's cut 45 minutes out of this sucker. Greed is good. That's all you had to say. But anyway, uh, directed by Patty Jenkins. It's in the system. Uh, It's probably got a pretty good list of holds on it right now. It does. We have lots of copies, though. But we do. We do. Um, I would say watch it. It's a better comic book movie sequel than like... Age of Ultron. Oh my God, that was the worst. That's so the one that watch made me, Wonder Woman. Yeah, Wonder Woman 1984 is way better than that. It's better than Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I was so excited about because I liked the first one and the second one was like, oh. 
It's another one that I think 45 minutes could have been taken out of and it would have been fine. Easy. Yeah. Take take 45 minutes out. Take all that junk with the CGI young Kurt Russell. Yep. I'll go watch the computer wore tennis shoes if I want to see young Kurt Russell. That was a Disney movie he did. I think there's there's lots of young Kurt Russell that you can choose from. Escape from New York. The Thing. Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, yeah, that one. I so, forgot about that one. Anyway. All right, so remember, kids, no matter what they tell you, no matter how badly they plead to try to convince you of otherwise, don't, don't trust, trust robots. robots. The views expressed by the hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Huntsville-Madison County Library System. For more information on the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, visit us online at hmcpl.org. If you'd like to learn more about some of the topics discussed today, visit your local library, which is us. No representation is made that your librarian is more knowledgeable than other librarians or that they have any expertise on your particular project.